So we are in, well, we're actually finishing up a series in the Gospel of Mark. Can somebody shut those two doors for me? It would be awesome. And we've kind of called it uh, Discipleship 101 and Discipleship 102. And so tonight it'll kind of be a little bit of review and maybe for the final, only I'm not going to pass out a test, so you don't have to worry about that. Um, But we've been taking different events that have happened along Jesus' life and kind of looked for some ideas of what it might be to be a disciple. And so we started out with this idea that you have to get up or you have to stand up. That Jesus invites people to leave their passive identity, like Matthew the tax collector, and get up and follow them, him with an active identity, right? To get up and to follow and to become a Jesus follower. But after that, the, the second thing we kind of found out in sort of village or in discipleship 101 is that once you get up to follow Jesus, there's a whole bunch of reorientation that you have to kind of go through. Because when you begin to follow Jesus, when you encounter Jesus, what you end up finding is that he doesn't do what you want him to do. And he doesn't follow through in the way you want him to follow through. And really, you have to reorient yourself into his way and not your way. Right? So there's this period of reorientation, understanding how you're going to become a disciple. The third thing we talked about then was that now you've stood up, you're reoriented, now you need to sit down. Right? We were talking about the feeding of the 5,000, but it's not sitting down like the old sitting down. It's sitting down with Jesus at a feast. You're sitting down not in sort of the anxieties of your past life, but now you're sitting down in the peace of what Jesus has given you. And while you're sitting down, the last kind of lesson of Discipleship 101 was that Jesus invites you to let go. He begins to peel your fingers away from the thing that you think you need to make life work. Right? So he starts peeling those things. It's just like taking a Lego out of a two-year-old's hand. Right? He begins to do that. So, so Discipleship 101 is get up, reorient, sit down and rest, and begin to let go. No final. That was, just, that was the course. Right? Then we kind of have entered into Discipleship 102, and we have said that Discipleship 102 is all about relationship with God, and it has these three ideas. It's faith, it's prayer, and it's forgiveness. And we've defined this idea of faith, prayer, and forgiveness, or faith in particular, as an intimate relationship with God. So faith is your relationship with God and how intimate it is. And prayer and forgiveness, your ability to forgive, kind of gives you the power to do that. Now, we started that in chapter 11 of Matthew. And so I want to kind of tell you that story because we have this really cool thing that God has kind of brought into our community that I want to offer you. So I would suggest that you go back and listen to this sermon in chapter 11 that I preached on. But I'm going to give you a quick summary of it and then offer you something really cool. So 11, what we talked about was Jesus heading to the temple. He sees a fig tree. He's hungry. He curses the fig tree. Goes to the temple, gets upset, throws some things around, says some really cool things about house of prayer, leaves the temple. Peter, the brilliant guy that he is, says, Jesus, the fig tree, it's withered. And Jesus says, you need to have faith. If you have faith, 
You can ask, you can move mountains. You can pray and ask for everything, anything, if you believe, and it'll be done for you. But while you're praying, you need to forgive so that, you're, so that God will forgive you, right? And so in this idea of, of faith and the capacity to move mountains, though he, he may be talking about the literal ability to move mountains, what I think and what we talked about him really offering to us is that one of the biggest mountains for us all to move in our life and usually seems impossible is the lifestyle of forgiveness. That usually the thing that's a mountain in our life is our willingness to forgive people. That our willingness to let go of things. And it seems in that passage that, God, that Jesus is linking forgiveness, our ability to forgive, into an intimate relationship. He's not saying that God wouldn't forgive us if we don't forgive. What he's saying is the issue of our unforgiveness will always be at the point of our relationship with him, and we won't move forward till we're willing to forgive. And so there's this invitation. If you just have faith, you can ask for the capacity to forgive. So, I would suggest you go listen to that sermon to really kind of understand that. But after that sermon, somebody in our church had a dream. And in that dream, they connected, which is often connected, the idea of having the faith the size of a mustard seed and the capacity to move a mountain. And... They connected this idea of forgiveness. And so what they saw was a mustard seed representing our faith inside a little glass jar representing us inside a bag, red bag, representing Jesus. And so the idea was, so they have this dream. And this person wants to stay anonymous, so I won't tell you who they are. Well, maybe for the right price I will. Um, <laughs> just joking. But what she wanted us to do was for each of you to take one of these. It's a mustard seed and a glass veil inside a red bag. And to remember as you, this year, as you face things that seem like mountains in your life, forgiveness, different obstacles, things that are difficult in your life, to remember that Jesus says that just the faith of a mustard seed can move a mountain. This tiny little seed can move a mountain and lead you into forgiveness. So, I'm going to just hand these out. Take one. Tape it to your mirror in your bathroom. Stick it on your dresser. Hang it on your little, you know, rear view mirror there in your car as a reminder. God is inviting us into the process of forgiving in places that are very difficult. So that was the the first kind of lesson in Discipleship 102. The second one, which was really fascinating, was this picture between Mary putting perfume all over Jesus and Judas selling Jesus for 30 silver pieces. And Rod asked us the question, it was a profound question, is Jesus your master or is Jesus your slave? Because a slave could be bought for 30 pieces of silver. And so it was a reorientation. Is it that you want Jesus to do what you want Jesus to do? Or is he your master 
the one that you've given everything to? So it was a, a reorientation question. And then two weeks ago, Mark challenged us with this idea that the table, the broken body of Jesus and his blood poured out for us, is open to everyone. And he points out to us that Judas sat at the table with Jesus. That it's open to everyone. That there isn't anything that you can do to prevent you from coming with the understanding that you have a need for Jesus' broken body and his blood poured out for you. But tonight, we're going to kind of wrap up Discipleship 102 and wrap up the year. And so to do that, we're going to be in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, starting in verse 50. And then we're going to jump over to chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. Now I'll say, for those of you who are turning to your Bible and reading this text, you're going to be like, oh, I've probably never heard a sermon on this. I kind of titled, and this is going to be a little bit more of a homily since I've done a big review, but I titled this sermon, Naked Man Running. Okay? So let me read to you this little passage, and I'll tell you what's happened. So, so Jesus has eaten the Passover meal with his disciples. Jesus has gone out. And they've sung some hymns. Judas has betrayed him, and he's brought forces in to arrest Jesus. Peter's whacked off an ear, which, let's pause now. Don't have fishermen in your revolution, because when you swing a sword, how do you cut somebody's ear off? Like, I have, like if you swing a sword and you're so bad that all you get is their ear, they're not the right kind of revolution. But Jesus is like, hey guys, you could have arrested me anytime, but you're arresting me now because you're fulfilling scripture. And then we have this weird little scene. And I'm going to read to you both this scene, and then we'll jump over to the next passage. Then everyone deserted him and fled. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment. So this guy, who after all the disciples have deserted, is still following. They grab hold of him. He loses his clothes. He runs naked. The next couple events is that Jesus is tried, unjustly, you know, convicted, crucified. He dies. He's buried in the tomb. And we pick up the story in verse 16. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salam brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? Now, I kind of love the humor of Scripture because I feel this way. I don't know how many of you have ever gone to an important event, and halfway there you're like, oh, I don't have keys to the church building, or oh, I don't have whatever it is that I need to do this. So they weren't really thinking that there is a gigantic rock in front of the tomb to move it till they're halfway there, and they're like, how are we going to do this? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side. 
and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell the disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. So there's two, thing, two things that are connected in these stories. And that is that people are running away. Right? And this last one, when these three women encounter this man and an empty tomb, and they're running away, the thing that they experience, it says, is that they're afraid. And if you don't hear anything else today, what I want you to hear is that being a disciple is a lot about running away. That anyone who's walked with Jesus for very long will, can tell you this, that there are so many instances where you're, you're ready to desert and flee or you're bewildered and you want to flee. Right? That part of following Jesus, as I said about the virgin birth about disruption last week is about this constant disruption. And an empty tomb and the death of Jesus are disrupting things. They're disrupting things. So if you find yourself running away from Jesus, it's okay. It's part of being a disciple. If you never find yourself running away, I would suggest you question if you're a disciple or not, right? Now let's go back to the, the story about the naked guy. Verse 50 says, Then everyone deserted him and fled. And the key phrase thing here is the word deserted. Okay? Because the women fled, but it doesn't say they deserted anybody. But these guys, all the disciples, Peter, you know, John, Bartholomew, Thomas, all these guys, they deserted. Now, this is an interesting word because it's the exact same word that we use for forgive. In fact, the one we read in chapter 11 is forgive, is to desert. It's the word we use for divorce, right? Because it's about abandoning someone. And the idea in this text, I think, what Mark is trying to tell us is that it wasn't just that as they faced this betrayal, as they faced Jesus dying, that they were like, oh, we're afraid. But something inside of them said, everything is done. We're going to abandon Jesus. This is not going to work. And this is important because as soon as Jesus is arrested, you know what's going to happen. They know what's going to happen. He's going to die. So, the get up, reorient, sit down, rest, let go, three parts of Discipleship 102, they don't mean anything if Jesus dies. All of their hopes, all those three years, all those miracles, everything that's going on, in their minds, it's over, it's done. It's pointless. The revolutionary has, is going to die, and they're going to die with him. And so they deserted, and they ran. And then we get the story about this naked guy. Now, if you go read a bunch of commentaries, what you're going to hear is you're going to hear, oh, well, we think that this is the way Mark put himself in the story. To say, hey, I was there. I was naked. I, I, I don't know, right? I don't know if this is what is, but what I do know is that 
Mark is chock full of these weird literary things where what he likes to do is he likes to tell one story and right in the middle of one story, he likes to tell you another story that's this tiny little story, right? And so what he says, none of the other writers, Matthew and Luke, who are copying Mark, don't go, huh, that's an interesting story. They're like, a naked guy. We're not putting that in our gospel, (laughs) right? But Mark left it in. Because I think, though Mark is not great Greek, Mark is actually quite an impressive piece of literature, and that Mark likes to do all these allusions to things. And so I think what Mark is doing is he's giving us a picture of what the disciples felt like. And I suspect this event happened, but he's saying this event explains everything. That when you and I, when the disciples faced death and the cross and the end of everything, you know what they felt like? Like everything had been stripped from them and they're running naked down the street. The scriptures tell us that into this world we came naked and we are going to leave naked. And the cross puts us in that position. Naked, running down the street. Right? Because the cross is disruptive. There are, there are two symbols in the Christian faith and two major events that define everything. The cross and the empty tomb. And for you and I, like, they have become relatively glib, right? When you say you're a follower of Jesus, you say you believe in the virgin birth, you believe that Jesus was God and that he died on the cross for your sins and that he rose from the dead on the third day and that he ascended to heaven and that he offers you the hope of eternal life. But the cross in the first century is this horrific, brutal symbol. Death is what it tells us. So part of being a disciple, to put, make meaning of the getting up, the reorienting, the sitting down, the letting go, the three parts, all those kinds of things, they're all undergirded by the cross. Because the cross is the thing that continually peels things away. And it, so your sin is exposed because the cross is where your sin is forgiven, where where the death of Christ pays the price. But it's not just that one moment. You and I, as disciples, find ourselves naked in front of the cross, being peeled away one sin at a time. This is a, running down the street naked is a common experience if you're a disciple of Jesus. Because the moment that you feel like, yeah, I've got this, the cross begins to strip things away from you and point things out. So it's this disruptive scene. There we are. Everything lost. But you jump back to this other passage. I read these two over and over again for two weeks and wondered to myself, Eric, a year ago when you were laying out the sermon series, why did you put these two passages together? I have no idea. I don't know what you were thinking. It must have been the end of a couple hours of work. And then I started reading it over and over again, and this thing popped out to me. Who's the person sitting on the tombs inside? It's this young man. It's a young man 
wearing a robe. Right? It's a young man running naked. There's a young man sitting on a tomb in this robe. Now, most of the other accounts say angels appeared and told the women that Jesus had risen. But Mark says, no, there's this young man. So I thought, okay, i got to figure this out. So I start reading commentaries. Nobody says anything. When I have a bad idea like this, and the commentaries and anyone else that I can find that I respect doesn't have anything to say about it, I begin to read seminary papers of seminary students that nobody knows about, you know, which is t- pretty easy to find online. And lo and behold, there's a bunch of seminary students saying, hey, this is weird. Why is this here? Well, here's why I think it's here. It's because Mark is trying to tell us something, that before the cross, we're naked men running, and that after the cross, in the empty tomb, we are young men and women, not naked, but clothed, with the capacity to proclaim who Jesus is. That there's a transformation, and Mark likes to give us pictures. Wants us to to taste and remember things. So the cross is disruptive, but the tomb is also disruptive. Because what it does is it changes things. Jesus' resurrection changes things. And what is the women's response to that? Well, they're bewildered. A couple weeks ago, I said that if you're a follower of Jesus and you don't think your beliefs are crazy, then you're not a follower of Jesus. Right? Let's, let's just rehearse the story for a moment. You believe that God of the universe became a little tiny baby inside a woman's stomach and was born. Crazy. Right? You believe that that man who was fully God, you believe he's fully God and fully man, died on the cross for your sins. Crazy. On a Roman cross 2,000 years ago. You also believe (laughs) that the God of the universe rose from the dead and the tomb is empty. No one in history has risen from dead. the dead. Go read Greek mythology. Even Greek gods don't raise from the dead. Just Jesus. If you believe it, then you can't just sit around and take off this lightly. Because the cross and the tomb are signs of the revolution, of things changing of your life changing, of my life changing. They're disruptive. They force us to run away for a moment. It should, Christmas should disrupt you. Easter should disrupt you. Jesus' death on the cross should disrupt you. That's what being a disciple is. So it's okay to run away. It's okay to be afraid why Jesus says it only takes a mustard seed of faith, a small amount of faith, to move a mountain. So here's my invitation. Jesus is speaking to you non-stop. He's speaking to you right now. He's going to speak to you when you're in the line. 
He's going to speak to you through your mom and dad and your kids. He's going to speak to you as you drive. There's all this talking going because Jesus, the Spirit of God, there's, there's this revolution happening. The cross and the tomb are constantly talking, constantly inviting you, constantly pointing out the hope and the sin. My invitation to you this year, then, is to allow the cross to disrupt your sin, to disrupt you. To allow the tomb to not only give you hope, but to disrupt you, to shake you up, to bewilder you. Don't just push it aside somewhere. Pretend like these aren't meaningful things. Boom. I did. That, that's, the, that's the invitation tonight. So let me just kind of close it with this. Because it's not, it's not easy being a follower of Jesus, right? Because when you want to do stuff, Jesus asks you to rest. When you don't want to do stuff, Jesus asks you to do stuff. When you don't want to think about your sin, he wants you to think about your sin. When you are ready to deal with your sin, he's like, we're moving on, right? He's different. And he offers you an opportunity to look foolish in the eyes of the world. We don't like that. My wife last night was talking to our kids just about reading scripture and about a, a relationship with scripture and what that looks like. And she said something really interesting that I think is a good pattern for you to think about your life with God and with these symbols and what Jesus has done. She was talking about how as you walk with Jesus, you begin to read his scripture. But what you do is you hear that you should have this long and very careful, disciplined way of reading scripture and study it. And there's all of these issues sometimes that come with you not doing it right. And what she said is really, if you're going to walk with Jesus, you have to throw yourself at scripture, wrestle with it, and then you'll drift away. And then you need to throw yourself back at Scripture and wrestle with it, and you will drift away. And then you have to throw yourself, because guess what? These words mean nothing unless the cross and the resurrection happen. And if they do, then every time you read it, the Holy Spirit that inspired it and the Spirit in you will begin to disrupt you begin to challenge the way you think about things, give you peace in the place that you didn't really want peace, right? And so you'll be bewildered, and you'll want, you'll, you'll want to desert, and you will. So you throw yourself back at it, and wrestle with it, and embrace it. And that's what the discipleship process is. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. It is now. Somebody give me time. This silly digital clock that I have does not do it. I have five minutes if anybody wants to push back or ask me questions or want you know clarify things or make sense of anything or just say, hey, we got five more minutes, less minutes to wait for bacon. Whatever. Hmm. Anybody? Questions? Thoughts? Yes. Hmm. Well, for me, I would just accept that he was there. 
and that he was running through, and Mark used those two things to point out something. I don't really know why he, or God used them. Yeah, it's an interesting combination there. But yes, I hear what you're saying. Yeah. Any other? Yes. Because Jesus is the first hope, right, of the resurrection. Right? He's the first to rise from the dead. You and I live in that in-between time where we are still working out our salvation. So the cross is still in the process of stripping things away from us, and our sin is still being confronted. So I would say, anytime my sin has been confronted, I feel like I'm naked running down the street. That would be my answer. <laughs> Any other questions? Yes, Rosie. very cool. Yes, I, I have heard that. Guess sir. Wow. So I'm going to pull up this chair and I think we've got a few preteens who are going to do some talking for us. <laughs> no, thank you guys. That was awesome. That was very, very beautiful. Russ, did you? That, that would, I would think so. Being naked and afraid, so we hid. It's mm-hmm. good. Good. Any other thoughts? Any more science things? We <laughs> Hang on, we're going to go back there. Go ahead, Emily. Well, and I think if you define faith as an intimate relationship with God, and the more intimate your relationship with God is lining yourself up with what he wants, it seems to me that in that passage what he says is the thing that is the mountain is our willingness to forgive. So a lot of times we, that's the thing that we're pushing up against, not so much the tree withering or the um, 
somebody being healed or so my suggestion is that you go back and listen to my sermon <laughs> to, because I think Emily actually asked a very similar question if I remember right it was last time I listened to it um, but the idea being that what Jesus is talking about there at some level is that the mountains that we face often are our feeling internally that we can't forgive. And that's the thing that affects our faith. Like our willingness to forgive others impacts our intimacy with God. That was kind of where that went. But any other comments, thoughts? One more from the middle guy right here. Wow. Lily Louis Gilgolo guy is pretty uh, impressive. <laughs> I like him. He's a pretty fun speaker to listen to. Um, I think I'm going to close. <laughs> it's fun talking with all of you guys. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this community and for their wisdom um, and their longing to see you in the stars and in, um, in the world around us. Give us the, the capacity um, to, to grab hold of those things and to listen to what you're saying. I ask that in your holy name. Amen.